When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby And welcome to another edition of Protecting America I'm Rita Cosby Former Marine Daniel Penny has been charged with manslaughter for the death of Jordan Neely, a homeless man who was placed in a chokehold by Penny on a New York City subway. And joining us now to discuss this case that everybody around the country has been watching is former federal prosecutor, one of the greatest attorneys out there, Doug Burns. Doug, great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. What's your reaction to the case? Well, you know, there's sort of two ways to look at this case or discuss the case. One, you know, I'm not being cute, is sort of around the Thanksgiving table. And then two is the technical legal analysis. So just quickly on the Thanksgiving, somebody might say, Grandpa, what do you think of the case, the choke case in the subway? And he would almost undoubtedly say, this man was a former Marine. He served our country. He's a hero. They never should have charged him with a crime. And then in chimes in Susie the 15-year-old 10th grader, who says, no, no, I disagree. I heard civil rights leaders saying it should be murder. And the point is, that's the sort of around the dining room table. Now, the dry legal technical analysis is that, first, let's just look at what happened, okay? You're on a train, and a guy's acting incredibly erratically, um, yelling, screaming, etc. It's in a closed car, which is very scary, claustrophobic, you can't leave. And just throw into the mix that we've had, unfortunately, a horrific number of you know mass shootings. Okay, so this guy steps forward, and he uh, you know incapacitates the individual who's acting so erratically, um, but tragically the individual ends up dying. So what potential charges uh, could result from that? Um, I have said before, I'll say it again, you have manslaughter in the second degree, which is an unintentional killing through reckless conduct or criminally negligent homicide, uh, which is an unintentional killing through negligent behavior. Uh, Those are the two potentially applicable charges. That doesn't mean they're victorious. It doesn't mean that they would prevail at a trial, but those are the two charges that would apply. The next part of the analysis is obvious, and that is that the defendant is allowed to use force uh, under the rules of justification and self-defense under New York state law if he's protecting either himself or other third parties from deadly force, imminent force. And that's where it starts getting a little bit tricky, Rita, because the point is, again, it's a big Rorschach test, um, heavy, heavy cultural and racial discussions about it. The case really shouldn't be racial, and the defendant came out to his credit Um, And he said it had nothing to do with race, and he's not a white supremacist, and I'm glad he did that uh, to clear that up. But the point is, here's where the case gets really, really tricky, because one argument on one side is that, of course, this individual was threatening everybody and 
God knows in the split second he could have pulled out a weapon and killed 10 people, which sadly and tragically we've seen over and over and over in the last months and years. Uh, the other argument is, well, no, no, no. At the instant of the encounter, <clears throat> he wasn't presenting anybody with deadly force. That's a little bit weaker, actually, because the first argument really, to me, carries the day a little better, which is you had no idea in that split second what was going to go on. But then comes one other problem, and I'm kind of going back and forth. But that's what we lawyers do. Obviously, we look at both sides. You picture me looking sort of at a diamond, you know, and I'm moving it around. I'm looking at the different facets of it. The other argument, which is going to be heavily made by the prosecution, is that the ex-Marine could have uh, incapacitated the individual, you know, without uh, using the chokehold, and then add another point in there, which is that the chokehold went on too long. That, trust me when I tell you, is going to be the key at a trial in this case. If a jury determines that it wasn't excessive to keep the hold on the way he did, then he will be found not guilty. If they find, on the other hand, that it was excessive and that the force uh, was disproportionate to the force being presented, uh, then it'll be a different outcome. It's a very, very debatable case in both directions, and emotions are running high, obviously, and you have all these cultural points and arguments. How key will eyewitnesses be, particularly those who were on the train? Well, that's absolutely critical, of course, because basically uh, you need to drill down on exactly what was going on, you know, under the legal test that I just laid out, exactly what was going on when the ex-Marine went up to him to restrain him. So you need to really get with every witness. What was the victim saying? Okay. It's pretty clear, you know, that he was speaking wildly and you know, I don't care if I live or die, apparently, you know, I don't have it verbatim. But the point is, it'll to answer your question again, which is a key one, it's gonna be absolutely critical. Also apparently there were a number of emergency calls made, and I think those are going to be key, Rita, because, you know, we'll listen to those, break them down, you know, word by word, sentence by sentence, you know, and people will have said something like, oh, my God, what's going on is this individual is doing A, B, and C. It's the A, B, and C that's absolutely critical. And that's a good point, because they could be doing that at the time of what was going on. So that yeah, is even better, key, right? Right. Where do you see um, the pitfalls if you're uh, defending the Marine? The pitfalls, uh, and I'm glad you asked me that, actually are worth repeating. The pitfalls are, A, if I'm the prosecutor, I'm just going to calmly argue. And it's interesting because, you know, prosecuting cases sometimes a little counterintuitive. You should get up as the prosecutor and say, look, uh, you know, we realize the way this could have been interpreted um, ladies and gentlemen, and we realize that, you know, people saw him acting erratically. We get that. But the reality is, number one, he didn't have the right legally uh, to put him in a chokehold that would restrain, constrict his breathing. And then number two, ladies and gentlemen, 10 times more importantly, um, he see under it's interesting. I was talking to a good friend of mine who's both a lawyer and a local justice, you know, in Long Island. And uh, he's been around, you know, 35, 40 years, like all of us. And he was citing, it's so interesting, you know, the actual book, you know, the penal law and the criminal law. And he was saying that right in the justification section, it says, Rita, that 
once you get to a point where the force is no longer needed, then you must stop. That's the biggest pitfall to answer your very good question. So the point is, okay, he had every right, we're going to assume, and I believe this, every right to approach this individual, put him in that headlock, that's fine. But the argument, the big pitfall, to use your phraseology, is once the, uh, the threat is abated, negated, you have to stop. That's the defense's biggest pitfall. And what is the best plus for uh, the Marine? Um, can they also bring in uh, the background, the criminal history, uh, the mental history, of course, of Jordan? Yeah, there, are, there are many, many, many pluses. Uh, for the Marine. Um, Just generally from 30,000 feet is the whole sentiment about, you know, a crazy man, a lunatic, the way he's acting. This individual stepped forward um, ostensibly to save himself and the others, you know, selflessly. You have that whole, you know, you think back to the Bernard Getz case without getting in the weeds of that case and so on and so forth. But again, that was a case where people saw it from two completely different lenses. That's the same thing here. You're going to have jurors who no matter what are going to see this through the lens of this guy is a Marine. He's an upstanding citizen. He served our country. All he was trying to do was selflessly protect people. And the point is all of the legal niceties and the technicalities, you know, can give way to that type of thinking. But again, the prosecutors do have a good argument on the use of the chokehold and how long it went on. But that could easily be outweighed in a real world trial, no question about it, by what you asked me, which is, you know, the overwhelming sentiment that this guy is not a criminal. He never should have been charged with anything. And by the way, He's a hero, et cetera. There is another point real quick, and that is that they did this on a criminal complaint. I know you addressed it. I remember hearing you talking about it. And the significance of that is that Bragg got to decide that he was charging this individual. Okay, Uh, Had he gone straight to a grand jury, if they put in a vigorous defense and the Putative defendant at that point went in and testified. They could have theoretically had what we call a no true bill, which is where the grand jury doesn't indict. Now, just so everybody's clear, they have six months, 180 days to present the case to the grand jury, okay, or give them a preliminary hearing. They're not going to do that, put that to the side. You know, look at the Koberger case in Idaho. They indicted specifically to take away the preliminary hearing. That'll be the same thing here. But uh, remember that I said this, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you might see a no true bill in the grand jury. It's possible. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, this phase, as you're just talking about. When it goes to a grand jury, is Mm -hmm. it possible that a grand jury comes back, uh, even though Alvin Bragg charged the Marine, that the grand jury could say, well, we've been on a subway before and we can imagine how dangerous it is. How do, give us the mindset maybe that goes into the grand jury as they're looking at the case. Well, yeah, let's lay out the legal standard, which I know you know, but for everybody. And then real quick to your question, you know, legal standard is, is there probable cause to believe that the individual committed a crime? Now, the beauty of a self-defense case, it's interesting, is in most crimes, you know, let's say a bank robbery, you know, the defendant says, I wasn't there, you know, and then they show a video from the bank and he is there. That's it. Aha. In a self-defense case, it's a beautiful thing for the defense in the sense that you can turn around and say, yeah, he did everything they said he did. There's no dispute there, ladies and gentlemen. He was justified in doing it, however. So the point is, you could easily see a situation 
um, you know, <laughs> this is tricky because it also depends how the case is presented. You know, prosecutors do have a lot of power. I've presented many, many, many cases in the grand jury, uh, federal grand juries behind closed doors. Uh, but the point is, if they make a fair presentation to answer your question, they could absolutely turn around and and return what we call a no true bill and not charge him with a crime. And by the way, here's the nuance point. Bragg, uh, you know, then gets to take the position, hey, I charged him, but the grand jury disagreed. So it gives him political cover, exactly. is your point. Exactly. That's the point, right. Where do you think a jury will go on this? If it's a jury in New York City, um, do you think that's helpful or do you think it's not helpful? Because in many ways it could be helpful. Most of them, I would think, have ridden the subways or at least seen the headlines. Well, that's an amazing point you're making because, you know, normally you would say in Manhattan, it would be bad for the defendant and so on and so forth, you know, by analogy to the discussions that you've had in your various shows about, you know, Donald Trump and he can't get a fair shake in Manhattan. But it's equal to or outweighed by the idea that people ride the subway all the time, as you just said, Rita. And so the point is, any subway rider um, is going to say, wow, I'm underground in this car, can't get out, the doors are locked, you have a stark raving lunatic behaving completely erratically, not clear whether he's armed or not, and this ex-Marine stepped forward. Um, you know, so, so to answer your question, I see it as for sure high probability of a hung jury, okay? Because, again, if you take 12 people with this, you're likely to get six who sees it one way and six who sees it the other way. Or two, I think it actually favors him at the end of the day for two reasons. Number one, your point, which is the experience of riding in the subway. And then number two, believe it or not, lurking in the rafters, sadly and tragically, is all of the mass shootings that we've had. Yeah, that people are just scared, right? Exactly, right. You know, it's amazing the climate that we're in because there have been so many cases on the subway. Um, and we've all seen the highlights and we've all experienced it just as just you talked one about. yesterday. Yes. Oh my God. Guy shoved a woman in front of a train. Absolutely. And, and it's that fear. What about also, I want to go back to some of the witness testimony because there is um, a witness who spoke, I think, to the New York Post. It's a woman mm-hmm. who said she was there, doesn't know, of course, Daniel Penny. And she says she heard Jordan Neely say, uh, I'm going to kill a mother blank. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. care if I go to the jail, basically, for the rest of my life. This is some similar to what others have said. Um, that certainly could be deemed as threatening. Very, very helpful uh, to the defense, for sure. Um, but again, <clears throat> a little broken record point for me, because it's worth repeating. You have two separate things, sort of apples and oranges. So apples is, yeah, I'm going to kill a mother effer, ba ba ba. So therefore, this individual had every right to step in and do something. Uh, the key words, do something. But then oranges, Rita, is uh, he could have ostensibly restrained him without using a chokehold. Um, but that's not such a bad point, because uh, I think most people will say, okay, he put him in that chokehold. That's okay. But where the problem comes in would be what I would call the Chauvin analogy problem. Um, of course, I'm referring to the Floyd case, which is that it went on too long, again, past the point when the individual was no longer a threat. That's the guts and the core of the whole case. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. 
Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Talk about also toxicology um, and autopsy. We haven't heard anything on either of those. How important could that be of what was in Jordan Neely's system? And also, we do know that we heard from the uh, coroner, it was deemed a homicide, compression on the neck. But you would get more details in in an autopsy and, of course, later in toxicology. Talk about how important those results will be. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, homicide is sort of a misunderstood term, so I always take delight in, you know, trying to bring clarity, stuff like that. Homicide simply means that one human being killed another human being. doesn't mean it's a crime, just so everybody's clear. Um, And, of course, the reason I make this point is because it's made to sound like a crime. You know, it's a homicide. That doesn't mean anything because you can kill somebody um, legitimately. You can kill somebody accidentally, completely accidentally, or you can kill them in self-defense, which is the claim here. On the toxicology, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, Because on the one hand, if the victim had a lot of substances, excuse me, in him, um, you know, that would ostensibly help. But in today's climate, you got to hang a footnote. Then all of a sudden they're shrieking and crying. You're attacking this wonderful individual, you know, with this type of stuff. And it gets really, really intense. But your point, though is well taken and that is of course it'll be helpful for context to see exactly what the toxicology situation was but again the more important part is back to what you asked me a minute ago which is if you have a witness saying that this guy specifically made a threat to kill somebody that's critical for the defense because you're allowed to meet force with commensurate force. So quick example, obviously, somebody pulls out a gun, points it at me, and says, I'm going to kill you. I then pull out my gun and kill him. That's invalid self-defense. The guy was going to kill me. If the guy, however, in the law school classroom pulls out a paperclip and says, I'm going to throw this paperclip at you, so what do I do? I pull out a gun and kill him now. That's not proportional to the force being presented to me. So here, if you have a witness or ostensibly multiple witnesses, who say, this guy said, I'm going to kill somebody, that really puts into play justification to actually kill the guy. But now in this case, if indeed he was making those comments, but not necessarily per se at Daniel Penny, uh, but other riders, and he stepped in, um, as we hear from his testimony, or at least what we've heard publicly so far, that he was worried he felt he needed to step up to help other riders. Does it, how, much well, that, of a, how much of it does it make a distinction that the action was maybe against others, or maybe it was so general, uh, we, we'll find out more details, maybe it was to everybody in the car, you know, when he's in the car. How, how important is that? That brings into play something that I've always remembered from 40 years ago in law school, um, and I'm going to my 40th reunion in a couple of weeks. Um, Bravo. Seriously, and that is that they taught us in criminal law that if somebody pulls out what's a fake gun, but it looks 100% real and points it at me directly, and then I kill them, and, but the gun's fake, I'm justified if I reasonably believe the gun was real. If, however, the individual, if you and the listeners find this very interesting, points the gun at a third party, 
and then I step up and kill the guy and the gun turns out to be a toy, okay, I'm not justified. So to answer your question, with that example I just gave, you know, it gets a little bit trickier when you're defending third parties, okay? You're on firmer ground, terra firma, if you're defending yourself. Under New York State law, you are allowed to defend third parties, but it can be uh, just a little bit more nuanced. But here again, it's all going to come down to what you teed up, Rita, and that is that if this individual is like, I'm going to kill that person right there, I'm going to kill this one or that one, the defendant would be justified in using deadly force to protect himself or others from deadly force. What about uh, Jordan Neely's uh, criminal background and mental history background? Because we heard from one of his uncles, uh, there was an article I read where he essentially said he had a history of K2. We know he was um, had uh, schizophrenia. We also know he had more than 40 prior arrests. Uh, one of them included, I think it was a kidnapping tied to a seven-year-old child. Another was uh, an elderly woman who he punched in the face recently. Um, so how does how much does all of that come to play? How much of that is admissible at court? Bit of a double-edged sword. First of all, uh, it's going to be debatable as to exactly what is and is not admissible. You know, if he punched somebody a week earlier, then that's not necessarily probative as to what he did this day. But at the same time, we've all been around enough trials, Bill Cosby and many others, where we talk about prior bad acts being led into evidence and so on and so forth. Um, so the reason I used the term double-edged sword, which I used earlier, in this case is with toxicology. But now here, you know, on the one hand, if he has a very poor record, you know, that theoretically shows, uh, I would argue to the judge, that proves judge has some probative value as to that he was a threatening presence. Counter argument is you're assassinating the character of the poor victim. Once again, this is what you do when you don't have a viable defense and it starts getting very heated and very toxic. I think it is relevant to some extent, obviously. Uh, but we saw in the Floyd case, nobody wanted to discuss that. It was just, you know, driving a narrative, ignoring some of the realities and so on and so forth. But again, the case legally, you know, and again, I draw this distinction, you have the cultural discussions, but legally it comes down to, was it reasonable for this individual, uh, the now defendant, to take uh, action, which amounted to deadly force ultimately, um, was that proportional to what was presented? That's an open question. Uh, it very well may be because, again, you have witnesses. I mean, I think you hit it on the head with that, you know, citation to a witness who says, this guy said, I'm going to kill a mother effer and I don't care and this and that. That is the presentation of deadly force. Let me ask you finally, where do you sure. think this is going, Doug Burns? Um, if you were a betting man, where do you think uh, the grand jury will go with this? Or do you think it may go to trial? It's a very hard uh, question to handicap, but I'll take a crack at it. I've never been bashful, right, with the crystal ball predictions. No, I think I think there's about a 25% chance uh, of maybe a no true bill on the grand jury. Uh, that, sadly, you know, a little inside baseball stuff largely depends on how the case is presented by the prosecutors. They kind of control the flow in the room. Uh, but the point is, it is possible. Uh, I'm going to predict, however, that they will obtain an indictment, and it'll go forward to a trial. Um, my odds off the top of my head would be something like, 
a 50-60% chance of a hung jury, okay, uh, 20% chance of a conviction, 20% chance of an acquittal, something, those are the loose parameters off the top of my head. Well, we will be watching this case uh, so much. Um, by the way, everybody, what a fascinating podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share this podcast. And Doug Burns, thank you for uh, now, what, 40 years you mentioned um, of just your <laughs> yeah. great, great service to this country and all you do um, to protect all of us and just your, your great legal mind. We love having you here on the podcast, Doug. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Rita. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.